Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Dennis McNally, Ph.D., and New School host Steve Heilig as they discuss the long, strange trip of American music, race, and freedom. So, we will turn to today's guest. And um, I met Dennis McNally a few times through the years when I worked both for the Save a Foundation, which does uh, blindness work around the world, and with Rock Medicine at the Hate Clinic, because he was the basically the the uh, publicist or PR flack for the Grateful Dead. And uh, he told me that it was kind of different from the usual publicist's job because his job description was keep them away from us. <laughs> and so the way he got that job was he had written his first book, Desolate Angel, Jack Kerouac, The Beat Generation in America. And I don't know about such things, but I have seen enough that a lot of people think that there have been, of course, probably 100 books written about Jack Kerouac, and the people who know say this is one of the handful of the very best. And Jerry Garcia loved it, <laughs> and actually got in touch, and that's how he said, you want to be our publicist, which he said, I'd never done before, and he said, fine, just keep the press away from us and we'll be fine. <laughs> so his second book came out many years later, and it was called The Long Strange Trip, The Inside History of the Grateful Dead which is a, then, again, 100 books about the Grateful Dead. This is the one to read if you're going to pick one because this is the guy who really knew them and knew the whole story. And then the new one on Highway 61, Music, Race, and the Evolution of Cultural Freedom. Now, he takes a decade to write a book. So he's not a guy that just churns out books. He spends a lot of time. He's got a doctorate. Uh, in history, he's a trained historian, and he spends a lot of time getting it right, doing tons of research. If you look at this one, which we will have for sale here, too, courtesy of Point Reyes Books. I mean, the index and everything in there, it's, it's quite amazing. But <clears throat> it's a little different than the previous two. Um, it is really kind of a sweeping survey and has a kind of unifying theory of where, a music, where American music came from, how it evolved. And so what I've asked him to start to start this off is to tell us, you know, what were you trying to do? Why did you write this particular book? Because there have been many books, again, about many of the people in here. Bob Dylan's in here, Robert Johnson, a lot of, you know, Louis uh, Armstrong, a lot of the musical figures. They've all had their own books written about it, but this one is different. And it, it ties it together in ways that, that uh, other people haven't. So what were you trying to do? And by the way, thanks for joining us. Oh. Thanks for having me. Thanks for providing the nice day for it, too. <laughs> oh, God, what a drive to come out here on a day like today. Um, when I finished, the little background, when I finished that Kerouac book, um, I had uh, a postpartum depression. Um, it's a very serious one. Uh, and the only time I was ever depressed in my life. Um, and when I got near the end of the Grateful Dead book, uh, I said, aha. There's a very simple way to avoid postpartum depression. Stay pregnant. <laughs> and the way I was going to do that was simply to have a topic in mind, you know, something for the mind to work on, even if you hadn't really started it or you know, taken it seriously, but just to know that there was a next thing. Um, and on, this is more hindsight than at the time. I don't quite know how I... Worked it out at the time. But on hindsight, what I realized was, you know, so I did this, you know, my first uh, 
book was uh, was about the 50s. I, I got out of college in 1971. So, and I was, you know, in the boondocks of upstate New York. I, I was not part of the 60s in, in that sense. Um, but I watched, you know, I sort of was watching it in Time Magazine and on TV. Uh, and and I was highly aware of it. And, and as a, I have a doctorate in history. And a, a, as a historian, uh, to this day, I would argue that uh, it, it's, you know, among the more interesting and certainly the, the most uh, uh, the questions that were asked, uh, challenges to Americans, the, 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 the mainstream American values of consumerism and of uh, dominance of nature and of this, that, and the other, sexual roles, were the, the, the deepest challenges to those questions uh, were, that were ever raised were raised in the 60s. And in fact, it's perfectly obvious today because uh, the culture wars that we're witnessing uh, are all, Ronald Reagan, you know, ran for president and the, the Tea Party to this day uh, are making hay with a certain selection of the American population by running against the 60s about, uh, you know, marriage equality is merely an extension of the sexual challenges of the 60s, etc. I sometimes apologize for being a San Francisco. I'm, I'm a Zen Buddhist and, and an ACLU activist, and it's really easy to do that in San Francisco. And saying what I'm saying in Bolinas is you preaching to the choir. Yeah, uh, yeah. You should so, be fine. I, I, oh, yeah, no, I'm not worried about anybody like throwing anything at me, but I, I was reflecting, God, it's a, it's a little cheap, Dennis, but you know, I should really go do this in Omaha and you know, see what happens, but maybe not. So we'll, we'll, we'll work on it here. Um, so, um, as I say, looking back on the, how I got to Highway 61, um, I had started with Kerouac, the 50s, you know, you couldn't write, in 1971, you started, you're looking for a dissertation topic, which this was, uh, the idea of doing something on the 60s was a little extreme. Uh, even the 50s, there were lifted eye, eyebrows, but I fortunately found one guy who went, oh no, that's a great idea. And so I started with Kerouac, who was sort of immediate progenitor. Or to quote Paul Krasner, my, that book was The Roots, as in Alex Haley, The Roots of the Hippie Generation, which was funny, but also true. Uh, so then uh, what happened was I wanted, in the process uh, of that, I became a deadhead. And uh, the, guy, the same guy who, who uh, literally one, one night uh, in the middle of my first year in graduate school, I was saying, well, maybe I'll do something on the beats. And he said, you should do a book about Kerouac. All of his papers are at Columbia, and you can sleep on my friend's couch. Uh, they're going to Fordham. They're, those guys whose couch I slept on, because I did take his advice, the idea of having a free place to stay near Manhattan for a broke graduate student is gold. Uh, and coincidentally, my parents had moved 10 miles from Lowell, Massachusetts, where Kerouac was from. So you know, the stars were clearly aligning. Uh, I also went to uh, 11 other uh, university archives because he wasn't quite right about that. But he was right enough about most of that stuff. And then he, he turned me the same a year or six months after he said that, uh, he took me to my first Grateful Dead concert and we got there and he said, open your mouth. Um, and I got my uh, first psychedelic experience and by the end of the night I went, gee, I guess I'm a deadhead, huh? Um, and decided that there were two books to be written. One was the, the counterculture, whatever you want to call it, the, the, the others, um, the, the non-mainstream in the 40s and 50s, and that was Kerouac, and then 
the 60s and 70s uh, with the Grateful Dead. And because I'm really slow, you got the 80s and 90s for free. <laughs> so I did that. And then as I was getting near the end, you know, so Jerry died. I, so shortly thereafter, well, shortly, three years after I started working on the book, um, and, and I might add, in the process of working on the book, I came here, uh, the, the last time I came here, which was in the very early 80s, to interview a guy named David Parker, who was part of the Grateful Dead family and worked here at Commonwealth, I think, for a very long time, quite a central figure in the financial management side of this, this place, um, and a very nice guy. Um, and... Uh, when I, and then Jerry, you know, so I became the publicist because uh, long, the, uh, the receptionist complained one day that nobody was dealing with press. And Jerry said, eh, get McNally to do it. He knows that shit. Um, and my job training consisted, I, by, I'm, by the way, he said, send him up to my house. I got to tell you this story. Send him up to my house. Um, uh, I'll tell him what he needs to do. And so I went up to his house and he said, okay, now the first thing you have to understand is we don't suck up to the press. Got, gotcha, gotcha, no sucking up, okay? He said, eh, that about covers it. Here, let's <laughs> smoke this. It's good job training. Um, so, and how long did you have that job for? I, well, that was in 1984, and I toured you know, with the band until Jerry died and, and stayed with Grateful Dead Productions until it folded in 2004, yeah. and then went to work for Weir for four years on the road with his band Rat Dog. So I spent, I don't know, 25 or so years with the Grateful Dead. Uh, as I say, getting, so getting towards the end and looking for a, a topic, I have joked, and there's a grain of truth to it, that you know, I did the East Coast with Kerouac and the West Coast with, with the Grateful Dead, and I needed to do something in the middle. Um, and, of course, there's this big river, and there's this very interesting road called, called Highway 61. And for those of you who don't know that there's a literal Highway 61, and I, every once in a while somebody will look up, like I think I see somebody doing now, going, really? I always thought Dylan just made it up. No, no, in fact, there's a highway, and it runs literally from the Canadian border to New Orleans. It ended in the day exactly where the Superdome is now in New Orleans, um, in the foundations of the Superdome. Uh, and it goes on both sides of the river. So to me, they're, they're synonymous. There's the river and the road. I wanted to call the book The River and the Road, and then I reflected uh, on something my father once said, all kidding aside, which was, son, if you have to explain a joke, this applies equally to titles, if you have to explain a joke, it's a bad joke. And he was right. So I said, okay, let's be a little more accessible to people. Oh, we're going to make it on Highway 61. Besides, I've had a, a fair poet, you know, already advertised my book for me, um, and I'm, I, you know, I'm not a thief, I'm a scholar, I, I can borrow. So I borrowed the, the title. On, as I say, hindsight, what I realized is I wanted to do the, as a historian, as a, in my own peculiar way, and even though I don't teach and I don't, uh, I'm not associated with an institution, I like to think of myself as a pretty serious historian, though I also would like to think that I write more interestingly than the average academic. Um, I, um, wanted to write the very deepest roots of what happened in the 60s. I wanted to know why the 60s happened. Now there's, you know, it's a coming together of a lot of strands of things. Um, 
technical, I mean, technological or socio-technological things like LSD and the birth control pills and the war and, you know, liberal politics flowering in the, the so-called Great Society going back to FDR and blah, blah, blah. Eventually, after a whole lot of reading and thinking, I decided that the, one of the fundamental strands and the one that I was going to explore was the relationship of white people, mostly young, um, younger at the time, and black music, starting with the minstrel era. The America that we know, uh, and I'm winding up, I'll, I'll let you get another <laughs> word in edgewise soon. <laughs> It's the introduction, then, then I'll be a little more concise, but it's the background. Um, the, the, the America that we know, when I was in graduate school, we were all taught that um, the, the future of America, the soul of America, the essence of America was in the Federalist Papers, and it was the debate between Jefferson and Adams, which was a crock. I mean, they had a really interesting debate, and it was important. The soul of America was defined by Alexander Hamilton when he established the National Bank and began established America in the early 19th century as a corporate country and an economic juggernaut. And it's been that way ever since. It's worse, ever worse, as a matter of fact, ever since. I mean, whole industries, like my own music business, for instance, is, is it's even beyond corporate now. I don't even know what you'd call it. But anyway. And the first person to witness that and have questions was thorough. You, you can't really go wrong. Eventually I went, ah, let's go back and re read Thoreau. And in fact, my first, the first draft of my book was like 150 pages on Thoreau. And eventually both my agent and my editor said, why? And I went, oh yeah, I guess. I, you know, it was so wonderful. I gave myself a you know, graduate level uh, series of classes in Thoreau, which was great fun but probably a little more than it was called for, for the topic. So we cut it to five pages and it made more sense. Uh, but there's a big stack of papers that someday I'm gonna loot for an article. So, and the, the point being that much of what Thoreau taught uh, was uh, stuff that was so radical, so beyond the understanding of America in the 1840s, that frankly, nobody paid any serious attention to it until the 1960s. But one thing uh, was germane to his time and, and was the origins of this book, and that is Civil Disobedience, the book, and his uh, opposition to slavery, which is to say that he looked around and saw the single great flaming, awful flaw of America um, starting with the Constitution, in which black people were assigned two-thirds two personhood, uh, or was it three-fifths? I think it was three-fifths. Was it three-fifths? Something. A portion um, for purposes of the census. Uh, it's locked in the Constitution, uh, at least until uh, the 13th Amendment. Uh, and said, you know, here's America and this this burgeoning economy and, you know, land of the free and, you know, with all, everybody's waving the flag about America, the land of the free. Except that, of course, at that time and to this day, uh, a majority of Americans have decided that freedom is the freedom to make as much money as humanly possible. 
Well, you know, there are other forms of freedom. There are, there's, there's the freedom, to quote Robert Hunter, to find your own way home, to, to make your own decisions about religion, about whatever, everything. Uh, and once I saw that and started picking up on that, then suddenly there's this progression that goes um, through Mark Twain and of people paying attention to black... I frequently say that, that what I have written um, is, people say, you know, is, is this currently relevant? You stop in 1965. Well, I stopped in 1965 because the book was long enough, but beside that, um, how relevant? Well, this, my book is the obverse of Ferguson, Missouri, which is to say, in Ferguson, Missouri, you have a white minority assiduously avoiding paying any attention to a black majority. And my book is about a very tiny white minority that is even within white people, a minority of people, individuals really, in the 19th century. But then starting around the turn of the century, increasingly large groups of people listening to whatever it is that they get out of African-American, mostly music, because that was the, the mode, the handy mode, when you've uh, been uh, in slavery for 400 years. It's, there wasn't a lot of literacy around in post-Civil uh, post, uh, War. Music was the, the one uh, uh, thing that was handy. Uh, listening to this, and in, invariably, becoming more civilized, becoming, uh, you know, it's very difficult to hate a group of people if you're singing their songs and playing their music. And, you know, it's like, well, obviously it's self-hatred if you were to do that. And, you know, it didn't go that far. So uh, I picked up this thread. And as I say, it starts with Thoreau. It goes with, through Mark Twain. There's Mark Twain, um, a, a, an inveterate, uh, you know, a southern racist. I mean, that's what he was born to. And he ends up writing a masterpiece of, of anti-slavery Satire, because that was the only way you could get a book published, and that was as as extraordinarily anti-slavery and anti-Southern and anti almost everything that you can imagine um, that was held dear uh, in the 1870s and, and the 80s when he was when he published it, um, and what among other things you know marrying an, an abolitionist uh, and his wife, the woman he worship from the day he met her, or the day he saw her picture, actually, in a locket, um, to the day she died and he died, uh, Livy uh, was a member of an abolitionist family, uh, not just an abolitionist family, but an underground railroad family in, um, I'm going blank, um, not Geneva. Anyway, up in uh, upstate New York, Elmira, thank you. Elmira, New York. And uh, that had an influence. But one of the other things that had a major influence in his life was listening to the Fisk Jubilee uh, Choir, which was the first group of, uh, first time white people start paying attention to black music is actually not played by black people, which is another recurring theme. You know, First it had to be played by white people before people got to the real thing. But it was minstrelsy, blackface minstrelsy, where it people would dress up. Now, m much of minstrelsy, of course, was racist and, and, you know, was a great way for white working class people to feel superior because there was somebody lower on the social totem pole than them. Um, but they loved the music. They played what they thought of as black music. It was semi-black music, what they called um, 
plantation songs. And the point is, they weren't making fun of the songs. They, they liked those songs. Um, and the first time that real black music was performed, at least north of the Mason-Dixon line, um, was the Fisk Jubilee Singers, who, um, 1865, in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, you have um, this tiny little uh, college, what, what is going to become a university, Fisk, uh, a Union Army general gave them a building, uh, probably about as big as this building. That was enough to give him the name, the, so they named the school after him, in thanks. Uh, and then, uh, to pay for things, they sent their, their choir out to the north to fundraise. Uh, and uh, they started out singing art music, you know, Western art music, which is to say Bach, you know, the, the stuff that was approved from, from Europe. Uh, and then they quickly noticed that occasionally, you know, they'd throw in an encore or something that was like a spiritual. And they noticed, of course, because they were, you know, not stupid, that uh, the audience went bananas for the spirituals. So this being showbiz, Jack will tell you, if it, if it, if it works, it stays in the program. And after a while, they just sang spirituals. And it moved people, and it certainly moved Twain, who saw it, saw the, that, that tour, that first tour, which played in the, the Congregational Church in his hometown, then hometown of West Hartford, Connecticut, and um, followed him the rest of his life. I'll shut up now. <laughs> so, black music, black strain. So one of the things, I mean, a quick question, we had a conversation before, and I asked you, if, it, if there weren't black music strains in America, what would be left? There's some classical music, and what else? Well, my standard line about that is, uh, you know, both songs would be very boring. Yeah. <laughs> so, see, because this is one of the one of the running threads in this book. You know, is this is this the ignorance and stupidity of of those who classify um, music as you know black or white? For instance. Uh, Jimmy Rogers, there's actually the, the villain in this book, uh, if there's a, a villain, uh, is a guy named Cecil Sharp, who did some very good uh, musicology in England, studying English ballads, you know, folk ballads, all that, that, that stuff that, that Joan Baez first, you know, when she, Silver Dagger, when she first uh, started uh, Elizabethan ballads, and, you know, very beautiful stuff. Um, and so he, this is around 1913, he comes to the United States, and he, this is just as, um, things like uh, folklore studies are becoming professionalized. A lot of other studies, the history, the American Historical Association is founded then. Uh, and uh, uh, Cecil Sharp says, okay, you know, comes up with a, a theory which is, becomes universally accepted both by the academic world and, and it seeps through. And it, keeping in mind that at the turn of the century, you're, you're talking about the absolute nadir uh, you know, uh, the, or the height of uh, white, uh, white uh, superiority complexes uh, and around the turn of this, you know, segregation and, and the, the notion of white superiority. And Sharp says, okay, there's these two kinds of music. There's this, this white music, the kind of stuff that we associate with, the, the, you know, with Dolly, or early Dolly Parton, which is to say the, the, uh, you know, the mountain hollers, the Carter family, um, and this is pure, and it's direct from, uh, uh, from England, and it hasn't been contaminated, i.e., by Eastern European people or Italian, you know, Roman Catholic, you know, it was non-WASP people and or black people. Uh, 
And then there's this black music and it's commercial and suspect. Well, you know, this is a crock on 15 levels. 15% of the population of Appalachia was black. So right away, you know, how pure? Um, you have the Carter family uh, and A.P. Carter, the, the patriarch, was out song hunting with a man named Leslie Riddle who was black. And they're going into churches. In fact, in the 1740s, there was something called uh, the Great Awakening, which was a series of religious revivals up and down America. In the South, uh, these revivals, you know, very important, and almost, you know, a, probably a majority of Americans attended them. And in the South, although they were segregated, which is to say the black people had to sit in some corner, um, you could still hear them sing. And they greatly, at that time, affected American Protestant church singing. So from at least the 1740s, uh, if, you, if you were a Protestant and sang church music, you were affected by black music. Jimmy Rogers, uh, the so-called father of country music, uh, yodeled, you know, Blue Yodel Number no. 9, his most famous, famous song. He didn't get that from the Matterhorn. He did not get that from Switzerland. In fact, although we don't know it for certain sure, the 99% probabilities, he got it from black railroad workers who were called Gandhi dancers, and they yodeled. Don't ask me why they yodeled, but they did. The other, you know, the great single example of all that is the banjo. Now, for some odd reason, and again, it, it, it's, it's interesting, other than the fact that, well, in the period after the Civil War, black people pretty much universally gave up on the banjo, which they had brought from Africa, and started playing guitar. Okay? Just, it happened. That, that's a historical fact. So that by the time Cecil Sharp gets on the scene, what he sees is string band music, the kind of the old, what we now call old-timey music, which is going to lead, among other things, to bluegrass, for instance. But, you know, fiddle, banjo, guitar, some vocals. Uh, and they think, ah, this is white music. Well, you know, banjo's an African instrument. So my only point is, there is no purity. Uh, there is, you know, it's, there's, plus, as Jack will tell you, musicians don't. Musicians listen to whatever moves them. Um, and, you know, if it's good, they'll steal it. So, so we had, we had millions of, of Africans brought here for slavery, and they were spread throughout the South in particular, but actually all around the nation. And you can trace back, as you do in your book, the various strains that developed out of that with uh, uh, acoustic blues from the South, uh, ragtime, as you mentioned, Dixieland jazz that came up, um, and then how these all evolved. And it's all traced through in the book in the different strains that came through. But you're, you're kind of making the point, one of the statements in here was um, that it was basically a love of black music, but not of blackness. So that people, you know, the, the dominant culture, white culture, kind of co-opted a lot of people would say, the music for all sorts of purposes, but not the actual roots of it in the culture. And we still had, and we still have actually, but you know, particularly segregation and all the things that you're talking about. You know, there's, there's a complete span uh, from, you know, my favorite quote in my book, uh, I had to pay $100 for it, um, <laughs> is a line from The Music Man. Um, 
You know, I, I love that movie. And there's, you know, uh, Professor Hill comes to River City, Iowa, and he's got, you know, he's a con man. He's got to look for an angle, and he sees this pool table, and he goes, goes into a great, you know, what is really a great Broadway song. It's called You Got Trouble. And the line is, libertine men and scarlet women in ragtime, shameless music that'll put your son, your daughter, into the arms of jungle animal instinct, mass hysteria, you got trouble. And then stage explodes into dancing. Now, that's a very interesting, and I grant you that was written in the 1950s, but from all historical research, that, ex that explains what was going on in 1912. Because in 1912, uh, there is a, uh, a fad, a national fad, for dancing. And one of those dances was called the Foxtrot. I hereby apologize to my parents, who in the early 1960s I thought were the dorkiest people on the planet for dancing the Foxtrot. In 1912, it was revolutionary. It, it, the f ragtime, which is a contraction of the phrase ragged time, and it's the introduction of African polyrhythms into American Western music. And it means there's two rhythms, and they're at the same time, and they're slightly out of sync. And in that friction, the musical friction between them, it introduces a wiggle into the music, a sensuality into the music. And that's ragtime. You're listening to a conversation with Dennis McNally and Steve Heilig. We think of, we, again, we can't think of, you know, you hear you, us, hear the word ragtime, and we think of the sting, and we think of the entertainer, and we think of this exquisite piano music that's like slow. Scott Joplin himself said, you should never play ragtime fast. A little slow, elegant, lilting. But in fact, it was funky, and it was erotic. And we're talking in 1912, the end of the Victorian era, and just watch Downton Abbey and watch them cope with ideas of public sexuality. Well, that's what was happening in 1912. And the, the, um, the, you know, the, the powers that be, the cultural monitors, the ministers and the women's uh, you know, association and the whatnot thought ragtime was the devil itself, come, you know, come to America. As there was a headline at the time, one of the papers, uh, I don't know if it, I can't remember if it was in your book or if I found it otherwise, and it, the headline was, uh, it was about a politician's talk, and it said, ragtime worse than marijuana. <laughs> Darn right. And this was during the whole, you know, the devil weed kind of thing, so, and it, it was going to corrupt it. Well, it was all into, in, intermixed, because everyone knew, when, in, in uh, Professor Harold Hill's quote, when he used the word jungle, that's... Just as the Tea Party now has code, you know, I forget what uh, the phrase I'm looking for, but uh, then if you use the word jungle, you were talking about black people, of course. Same with marijuana, which was totally associated with black people. Yeah. Black people and Latin people, Jazz. bringing it up from, from uh, Mexico. The point being, it was all part of the sort of the, the, the coming of the modern age of a uh, secular uh, and you know, not, you know, looser in every, in every meaning of that word, um, era. And, uh, and it worked real well. So you say, you point out in the, uh, examples in each one that each of these strains of music, whether it was folk, jazz, ragtime, blues, there was this kind of reaction, uh, but that 
gradually, and some some of the music happened sooner than later. But you know, you wind up in the book, as you say, with Bob Dylan, who took them all on in a sense in different ways. They became more acceptable because non-black people, white people, were playing it. Each one was introduced in a massive way by white people. And, you know, that was sort of that's the structure of America. So that, for instance. Um, uh, the fad that introduced uh, the Foxtrot in 1912 was led by a, a, a dance team, uh, Vernon and Irene Castle. Very white. Uh, he was from England, in fact. Can't get any whiter than that. Uh, in the context of America. And, uh, however, when they, and they had a very classic, you know, this is society. I mean, they're, they're playing at the society ballroom level, but playing ragtime with a black band behind them. When they did their waltzes and their other th songs, they had a white band, and then they would have a you know a black band uh, for for the funk, um, and it you know it worked and it it made it made uh, it made it as I say it was a complete fad. Eventually, people would then hear the real thing. In jazz, you have the systematic fraud of Paul Whiteman. I don't make this stuff up. His name was Whiteman. <laughs> Paul Whiteman adopts a few licks from jazz, what he thought of as jazz, um, which actually he stole from a white guy named Art Hickman who played at the uh, Fairmont, uh, the, the style of the orchestra. Basically, he threw a couple of banjos into an orchestra and, and some, some acoustic licks and called it um, jazz concrete. Jazz, you know, pardon me, jazz classique. Uh, he then proceeded to, you know, sell millions of records. He was phenomenally popular, uh, and uh, wrote a book called Jazz, in which, among other things, he admitted he knew nothing about jazz. But he managed to talk about the history of jazz and never mention black people, which is a good check. Uh, eventually, you know, you get from him to Louis Armstrong. Who is actually, who is in fact playing jazz, uh, etc. And you know, on and on and on. And then you get to uh, from Bill Haley to Chuck Berry. Although Chuck Berry is an interesting case because Chuck always was a little ambivalent about his own uh, racial heritage. He, he sort of he kind of tended to claim that he wasn't really black. He was actually sort of native, partly Native American or something. <laughs> Strange about that. But he, he did invent the electric, the, uh, the rock and roll guitar, um, and uh, it made the audience, there were all these wonderful dances, particularly in the South, uh, in which they would put a rope down the center of the, the room, and you'd have white kids on one side and black kids on the other, and invariably, damn it, the rope came down, <laughs> which is sort of the story of America. Um, but that, as you say, each wave would have this, you know, counter, you know, wave of frenzied um, uh, uh, moral authorities, whether it was the police or a minister, usually it was a minister, um, talking about, uh, you know, how children are going to hell. Uh, and, um, and then eventually the kids would go their own way because that's what kids do, including all of us 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. So if you look at uh, each of the strains of music, there were musicians, white musicians, who tended to be more open-minded and really got turned on by hearing this stuff. So you have like blues guys like 
it would have been Bloomfield and Butterville Blues Band and all of the, actually all the rockers early time, I mean, they were listening to that and folk guys like Dylan, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it was in some ways a co-opting, but it also made, uh, it gave visibility. And if they were actually playing the songs and some of the black originators actually got paid eventually. Some but of them, if, they, if it wasn't some. Led Zeppelin, if it wasn't Led Zeppelin, <laughs> we'll recording. Well, see, so, so speaking of them, um, you quote, you have the famous, I couldn't find right here, the famous Sonny Boy Williamson, one of the blues founders, he, he said one time to the effect, I don't have exactly, but those white guys wanted to play the blues so badly and that's exactly what they did. Yeah. <laughs> so, he was, Sonny Boy was a you know, fairly harsh critic. Um, uh, you know, he, he had his point, particularly then, um, uh, my next line in the book, uh, you know, the, there's uh, these, um, he, there was this one moment, I wish I'd been a fly on the wall, or at least I wish Susanna had been there with a camera, because there's, on the couch, this is in London, uh, uh, these, these guys actually from Germany started bringing um, American blues musicians to um, it actually starts in England, and then, but then all in Europe um, in the late 50s and into the 60s. Uh, mostly uh, Chicago uh, electric blues guys, uh, but other, you know, others as well. And um, there's this scene. Uh, his, his guy in London was a guy named Giorgio Gomelsky who, who ran uh, clubs. Uh, that uh, would later see, for instance, would be the first place that the Rolling Stones would play all those so-called British guitar gods that we know now. Um, and um, on the couch was three very large, they all happened to be big guys, black guys, and that was Willie Dixon, Howlin' Wolf, and Sonny Boy Williamson. They're on the couch with Coffee and Johnny Walker, and on the floor in front of them is Jimmy Page, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, and you know somebody, somebody else, which is to say, the future, you know, guitar gods of of uh, England, getting their lessons, and you know, and Sonny Boy's reaction is that Willie Dixon's reaction's a lot smarter. Willie was taping his own songs and giving them to to these guys and saying, "Why don't you put this on your next album?" And he collected royalties. Um, uh, he wrote more of the blues classics than anybody. Than just about anybody. Willie, you know, I mean, all, all, certainly all of, virtually all of uh, Holland Wolf's hits and more than a couple of uh, Muddy Waters. Um, I might add that, uh, you know, it also took, and I don't know who the, the, we should know who the lawyer was that sued the Sox off. Led Zeppelin, um, and I, right now I'm going blank on the name of the song, but anyway, they ripped, they seriously ripped off. Um, no, no that was not it. that song. They got sued oh, that, for that one too. Yeah, well, that was no doubt. That was the band Spirit they stole from. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that for sure. Uh, but they specifically and documented because they, the uh, the the original composer won, and I'm pulling a complete blank on the name yeah. of the song. And I, but I think it was um, was it Wolf? I yeah, I think so. At any rate, um, they did get sued, and they, you know, and it was just one of those. My God, you're you know you're making this money. You're you know you're 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 you're, you're guitar gods, and and you have to rip off a black guy in Chicago. You know that you. I mean, it's well the classic well, story that when the Rolling Stones first came to record in Chicago, they showed up at, in the studio, Chess Studios, I believe, and uh, yep. 
there was a guy painting the inside of the walls, and they said, oh, this is great. We're going to have a new fresh paint and everything. And the guy who was painting it was Muddy Waters, yeah. who was making some extra, who was their idol who wrote the song Rolling Stone that they took their name from. And they just like, how, you know. And, and, so. you know I've, and I've also been told, you, you never know, that, that that's like too good to be true. And it's yeah, okay. But, but it's certainly true that they went, they were very clear about their influences. And... Like, I've started to say, and in, in, in my in normal fashion went, there's a span. There's the people who deny all uh, influences, most notably a guy named Nick LaRocca, whose band, the original Dixieland Jazz Band, uh, introduced the word jazz to America in 1917 with a hit song called Livery Stable Blues, which wasn't a blues, it was kind of a vaudeville song, but it sold a million copies, so it had a hell of a, in 1917, so that's a hell of an influence. And he happened to be a, a you know, pretty racist guy from New Orleans who said, now, nah, you know, we, I invented jazz. None of these black guys, you know, they stole from me. Yeah, right. Uh, and every one of his peers said, yeah, right. Uh, so that's one level. And then there's the white guys of Austin, the so-called Austin High Gang, who are very serious students. They, they, this, they're they're uh, learning how to play music in the, about 1920, and they are literally going down to the south side of Chicago to listen to Louis Armstrong and, uh, and uh, King Oliver and Bessie Smith play the real deal. And they did their honest best, not to imitate, but to, to play the style. And... And they honored it, and they respected it, and they also acknowledged it. Now, you can say that's co-optation. Right now in the academic world, there's a lot of arguments about that. There's a, uh, there's, in the academic world, there's a lot of uh, theorizing that, you know, white people shouldn't talk about black music. Men should not talk about women, you know, women writers. I'm troubled by that. It's one of the reasons why I'm glad I left academe. Uh, I, I, you know, if, if it reaches the point there's a, a, a guy who talks about the very, the very positive research that some of the first British scholars who, were, who believed in the, in the empire and all this stuff, true, in India, and the research they did in studying Indian culture, specifically learning Sanskrit and all this stuff, and discovering the history of, of India. And there's uh, a rule, you know, there's a school that says uh, they're all, you know, creepy imperialists and, and everything they did was simply to, to, to steal. I don't think that's fair, uh, for starters. Some of them, yes. Uh, some, many of them were evangelical Christians who, you know, no matter what they, they did, uh, would say, oh, well, this is all very nice, but, you know, Rumi is very nice. And he translated, but, you know, he's, he's not Christian, so he's going to hell. You know, but that's not true of all of them. And in any case, these guys did learn Sanskrit and learn Persian and translate this stuff, for which I'm grateful. I, you know, I, I like reading Rumi. <laughs> it's kind of like interviewing Ramblin' Jack again, but, <laughs> but Dennis can't sing, so. Um, <laughs> so you've got hundreds of names in here. So that you're going to hate this, but let's do this, the, the first thought, best thought. So the three... You know, and throughout these strains are the three most influential figures. All you need is the names in these. So in, in, in say, ragtime and jazz. One, two, well, three. Scott Joplin was the greatest of the, of the ragtime uh, composers, mm -hmm. a, a great composer. And he really illustrates the, 
the conundrum about all this because he really wanted to be a classical, as in white classical. He created, he, he tried, he wrote an opera called Tremonitia, which made him crazy. I mean, you know, its failure made him crazy, or, you know, or certainly depressed him deeply and le certainly led to his death. He was in the middle because at that point, uh, black people who were getting more urban sort of rejected him as being rather rural. The sort of thread through Tremonitia is kind of Booker T. Washington stuff, and they said, nah, you know, we've moved beyond. Okay, number two. Um, <laughs> Louis, that was reasonably short. Yeah. Louis, Louis, Louis Armstrong. Louis Armstrong is simply the man who, who made what we think of as Dixieland, as original jazz, was group improvisation. Everybody was improvising. Uh, what Lewis did was create a style in which the lead player, the, the soloist, that he made jazz a solo-driven art, and it stayed that well. It stayed that way to, to this day, really. Um, Bop changed many things, but in the end, it's still largely a solo-driven art. And he really, and he also brought in um, uh, Tim Pan Alley's songs because he wanted to be a complete. Uh, entertainer. So in addition to playing, he, he wanted to sing. Um, and number three. Well, you can talk about a lot. Uh, the interesting one, and again, this is one of those things where, where you, you have to be very wary of this whole idea of black and white. And I would say Duke Ellington, because when... Um, when Miles Davis recorded a, an album with a lot of white people, I might add, a lot of white musicians, called Birth of the Cool in 1949 or 50, a lot of black people raised the black critics in particular raised their eyebrows. And, you know. Now, there's few, nobody to his face would ever tell Miles Davis that he wasn't black enough. Uh, but, you know, he, he worked with Gil Evans on Sketches of Spain, which isn't, virtually isn't jazz at all, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Bill Evans, too. Uh, and Bill had Bill Evans, you know, why, why do you have a white piano player? You know, show me a, you know, I, I'm not going to do his voice. Show me, a, show me a piano player that plays any better than Bill, and I'll hire him. Um, and when he, but when he recorded Birth of the Cool, and they were saying, "Oh, that's you know, that's sort of that's white music," because it wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't all that blues-based. And later, somebody asked him, um, uh, you know, you know, where are you getting that stuff from? You know, that's not very black. And he said, "Sure, it's black. I got it from Duke Ellington. Duke Ellington made jazz a universe, and there's that universe ranges from." really bluesy, rootsy stuff on one extreme. But it also includes uh, Big Spiderback playing, you know, Debussy? Debussy. What do you said? I never could pronounce Sorry. that word right. Um, influenced, you know, stuff that really isn't all that improvisational at all. But it's brilliant and it's music and it indicates the, the universe, really, that jazz, you know, jazz can contain. How about blues? One, two, three. <laughs> Charlie Patton, who was the first great blues player, um, and who, again, um, 
the, the tragedy with Charlie Patton, and, and I urge anybody who hasn't listened to him some, go listen. But, but do keep in mind one thing, and that is unfortunately that he recorded for Paramount, which, uh, which is legendary uh, for being the worst record company recording-wise in the history of art. Um, God knows why, whether it was people or equipment, but you know, the, the sound quality uh, is just terrible. Uh, but Charlie Patton, uh, you know, brilliant. Robert Johnson, who is sort of the, 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 the end of acoustic blues in America. I mean, obviously there have been lots since. But Robert Johnson is another one of those guys that stirs up the whole black-white thing because Robert Johnson records 29 songs, about five of them get released as records. One of them is a very teeny hit that sells 5,000 copies. Uh, and he dies. And, you know, of course, no, no CDs at that time. He's forgotten, virtually. I mean, there's, you know, there's 50 blues collectors in America that have a clue who Robert Johnson is. Until 1961, when Columbia releases an album called King of the, King of the Delta Blues Singers. And suddenly, a whole bunch of white people, critics, and all those guitar gods over in England listen to him and go, OMG, this is the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> and now, where there's a sort of a critical reaction where people are saying, eh, you know, he died young, there's all these rumors about, you know, the crossroads and voodoo and blah, 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 and he sold the soul to the devil and blah, blah, you know, and, and all this sort of nonsense. And, you know, that's why he's famous and it's only white people and, you know, and, and if, if black people never really latched onto him, he, he can't be all that good. A man I greatly respect, I had this argument with Chris Jackowitz of Our Holy Records, who's one of the most important people in terms of as a musicologist, a professional, you know, he wasn't an academic, he was a, a recording musicologist and, and recorded some very important blues music. But that was his rap. And I looked at him, I said, so you really rather listen to, um, who was the guy I used? Um, uh, how Long, How Long Blues? Um, I'm sorry? Led Belly? No, not Led, uh, but... Um, Thank you. Leroy Carr. I said, Do you really, would you really rather listen to Leroy Carr than, than Robert Johnson? He said, yes. Well, you know, at that point you say there is no arguing uh, for taste and, and, and let it go. But so Robert Johnson too. And then three, his, metaphorically, his son, uh, Muddy Waters, just because he really was um, his musical son, uh, as it were, was, you know, from the neighborhood. Uh, and, um, and he electrified it. And what he did was take it to the next level and move to Chicago and follow the whole diaspora of black people out of the South and, and apply electricity and become Muddy Waters. You, at some, uh, we get into the 50s and you talk about coming back to the Beats that they were uh, in some ways a big catalyst for this acceptance that the Beats were mostly white uh, who got very into jazz and, and, to a lesser extent, blues, and that they brought this into by writing their books. I mean, Kerouac's books, many of them are saturated in, in jazz, and so they seem to, in your book, to, to have been quite influential in the long run, too. I, I did an interview with um, Michael McClure, who's, um, you know, the, the last, I think he's the last, oh, no, Gary's still alive, thank God. Um, Anyway, you know, one of the famous moments of the Beat Generation was when Allen Ginsberg read Howell for the first time 
1955, and Michael McClure was the baby at that reading. I think he was like 21 or something. Thank God he's still hale and hearty. And I interviewed him for the first time uh, working on the Kerouac book, and, and I, I said something about, you know, what do they get so excited about in the, in the 50s? And he said, you weren't there in the 50s. I said, well, you know, I was there, but I was, I was six, you know. Um, he said, you have to have been there to understand the, the frozenness, the staticness of American culture in the 50s. My, to, to boil this down to one sentence, this is an era when the TV show Father Knows Best, people thought that was realism. That, you know, that there wasn't any alcoholism and there wasn't any incest, there weren't any black people. It was this nice world where, you know, all the sort of the old verities held. And then you have the beats stand up and say, no, 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 the emperor is naked. And, you know, you have another generation, you know, Janis Joplin reads On the Road and sticks out her thumb and leaves Port Arthur and heads for, where else? San Francisco. See, you guys, we're cheating because we're already there. Jerry Garcia was already there, you know. He, he was uh, taking art classes at the Art Institute um, from a guy who I think lived in Bolinas for a long time, Wally Hedrick, right? Was he, wasn't he a Bolinan? Somewhere around here. He Somewhere. Oh, yeah. okay, so close. Well, close. Anyway, West Marin. Um, close in spirit. Wally, um, somewhere out there? Fallon? Okay. So in the, in the neighborhood. But, uh, and Wally um, uh, was, you know, was in fact uh, part of the group that, that opened the Sixth Gallery with, with the poet Robert Duncan. So he, he was writing, writing in all that. Wally um, at one point made his living um, by being paid um, because he had a beard, which in 1955 was authentically remarkable. And he was paid to sit in the front window of Vesuvio's as an authentic beatnik so that the tourists <laughs> would come in. Trader Henri Lenoir, who owned Vesuvio's, was not a dumb man. This was perfect advertising. Nice work if you can get it, right? That's right. You know, hey, you know, read, drink your coffee. He taught a Saturday class. Jerry Garcia attended it at some point. And he was like 16. Um, and he was just a, a kid from the mission. And, um, and Wally said, look, you're more beat than I am. Go down to City Lights. Get this book on the road, which, you know, was brand new bestseller, and check it out, which is why when Jerry eventually got to me, Kerouac, I mean, Kerouac was his first and really most important god. Jerry thought of himself as the youngest beatnik. He wasn't, he wasn't a hippie, he was the youngest beatnik. And, and uh, you know, of course, I, I had to bring in Kerouac in this book because every writer recycles himself eventually, and it was my first opportunity. It also connected. I mean, Kerouac... His fundamental um, mode was the improvisation of jazz. I mean, that was his fundamental influence. And, and it, was, it was just another example of, of uh, white people listening to black music and learning, expanding, growing. So one of those uh, persons was a young man named Robert Zimmerman, who changed his name to Dylan. And... Uh, was in the early folk scene. He's denied many of his influences through the years, but he has copped to being uh, into Kerouac and into people like Ramblin' Jack Elliott here, who were influential on him. But you really point out that, so when he exploded to becoming really the most famous 
a musician in America for a period of time. Um, that this was, and that's where you end the book, that this was really a key, like the culmination of all of these influences coming in because he was playing all these strains in some way. Uh, he, he brought a lot of, you know, a lot of strands together. Um, the Civil rights movement, which because he sort of stepped back from it, people tend to think of it as not all that important. Whereas in fact, I mean, he spent three solid years focused. I mean, his, the great love of his life, he met the great love of his life six weeks after the Freedom Rides, which were really among the more important moral events in American history. Um, if you read about, were you on it? Well, thank you. And, and I, no, that's one of the moments of my life was being a 12-year-old church kid in Los Angeles in 1962 and having a Freedom Rider come to our church and with her guitar and play songs for us, and among other things, play a song she had written in jail on a roll of toilet paper, I swear to God, and she rolls out the toilet oh. paper. I mean, you know, but that, I mean, that, and, and singing, We Shall Overcome, and I mean, you know, that's one of the fundamental elements of my life. Uh, Dylan, uh, the, the major point I, I try to make with Dylan is that at the time, because he did such a perfect job of, of sound, you know, his notion of what what he sounded like in terms of that Oklahoma, you know, mumble, <laughs> uh, his mumble. Uh, it's not the way Woody sounded. Uh, people think of him as this, you know, white folk. And this goes back to Cecil Sharp, you know, white folk music. If you look at what he played and what he talked about, uh, has talked about uh, always, his influences were each at least as much black as white. And that, which is the, half the point of everything I say about Dylan. And he says, as I, because I quote, I loot his book Chronicles because uh, I was thinking about, you know, I, I, because of the Grateful Dead, I, I know his management and I could at least have asked to interview him. And I was considering it. Um, and then I read Chronicles and I said, I don't need to do this anymore. I mean, here's, here's, he's answering all my questions. I don't need to, ask, you know, this is seriously considered. <laughs> And I'll tell you, you know, one special thing about Dylan, which most people don't, aren't aware of. In the middle 1950s, uh, there he is, you know, high school kid in Hibbing, Minnesota, almost to the Canadian border. But in those days, um, and probably still, but who, who does it because of the internet now, um, you could hear, you could get AM radio stations from a thousand miles away after dark. And he listened to a radio show called No Name Jive. The DJ was a white guy by the name of Gatemouth Page. Um, and he was known as the Mouth of the South. And he played the best black music current. Now, in 56, that means Little Chuck Berry and also all the Chicago blues and Magic Sam and Jimmy Reed and you, know, you name it. The very best. So here's this white kid in... in um, in a hibbing, listening to this. And I would argue quite seriously that that's, in some ways, when he became Bob Dylan. When he, at least, when he stopped being little Bobby Zimmerman. And he talks about how that event, that listening to that music, connected it, made him understand that he too was part of Highway 61 and the river, except he was at the other end. He was at the beginning. 
But it connected him, and there's, there's this wonderful quote, which of course I quote completely um, uh, in in the book about just that, that it that you know being he suddenly understood that you know it was a connection. And one of the things, the first draft of the book was twice as long, and one of the things I tried to do, and far too long, I mean it's 400 pages, but one of the things I tried to do was to get people to appreciate the Mississippi River as a place, the whole river as a place. You're listening to a conversation with Dennis McNally and Steve Heilig. Now, if you stop ordinarily and somebody says, you know, what's your place? And if you have in this room, you say, Bolinas, okay? Say, you know, and that's from where you sit, what, 10 or 20 or, you know, being generous, throw in Fairfax. 30 miles, 30 miles around you, or what, you know, whatever you choose. I would argue, and it's a stretch, that if you connect to the river, even if you're in St. Louis, your place is 1,200 miles long, five feet wide, which is a very long and skinny place, but it's all a place. It is all connected. And there's even a great, if I say so, quote from Thoreau, which sort of reflects that, that it's all, I mean, and it's kind of a Buddhist thought too, but that's, that's another subject. Transcendentalist. It, and in his case, transcendentalist, it is all interconnected, and, uh, and that's the river. But the, so your book is some, something of an argument that music was hugely influential on culture in every way. It's more, you know, I mean, more than anything else you can pick out. I mean, there are books, but people didn't read it, but the music spread everywhere. There's a great little uh, line in here from Steven Spender, a great scholar. Music is the most powerful of all the idealist drugs except religion. <laughs> and, and so what you say Dylan did, and you're talking about bringing it all back home when he was going electric and he was bringing up these songs that were, you know, revolutionary in a sense. He said, it's a distillation and a fruition of the three streams of this study, this book. The white reaction to African-American music that is rock and roll, the correlational pursuit of freedom that almost all the songs touch on, and the fabulous verbal application of that freedom that the beat literary tradition has engendered. So, I mean, he was the one that brought it all back home in a sense, right? And that's, and that's why I ended with it uh, and give him so much uh, attention. He just... He does, he brings it all, you know, all those streams, you can see all those streams in his career. And somebody asked me, you know, well, what, some, actually it was a deadhead, of course, um, asked me, well, wh why not the Grateful Dead? To which I said, well, much of what I say about Dylan, you could say about the Grateful Dead, um, except A, they didn't have any connection to the river. B, I already did that. <laughs> it's like, can't, you know, you cannot write that book twice. And C, um, though I think Robert Hunter is a very great lyricist, um, I do think Dylan's the most important American lyricist of the 20th century. And again, he touched, I mean, the, it's the same themes ultimately Hunter touches on, which is instead of being just romantic, you know, what most American music tends to be about, which is romance, uh, sort of puppy love and and more mature love, hopefully, but still, romance. Um, and what these two, those two writers in particular, and a, lot of, and a lot of other great ones, really focus on, which is freedom, which is ultimately, you know, maybe, maybe a little, I won't say more important, but is really ultimately important. 
And if you look, if you follow Dylan now, still, I mean, he's been on this never-ending tour for 20 years or something, and his records now, in some ways, uh, and his music he plays are, I mean, for he changed over the years, but now it's back to kind of the fundamental stuff he was doing. He's really into the early American sounds and forms of music, Tin Pan Alley, almost some of the stuff that he's doing, it seems. There's a... Um I was almost finished with my book. I'll, I'll tell you a story about um, And uh, this editor that I work with on the Grateful Dead book said, um, we were talking, and I, he said, have you, have you read Sean Wilentz's book? Sean Wilentz works, uh, works on Dylan's website, and, and uh, he's a professor at Princeton, um, but he also works on Dylan's website. And he brought out a book about Dylan. And I had, it came out literally just as I was finishing writing. And you know, there comes a time as a researcher where you go, no mas, I just, I'm not reading another goddamn book about Dylan or you know, any other subject. And this editor says to me, have you read Willens' book? And I said, well, to be honest, no. I, you know, I finally had to draw the line. He said, well, I edited it, so I recommend you read it. And I thought, oh, God, I should have known. And so uh, I read it. And, there's something he comes up with that's called a white face minstrelsy, which is to say, um, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't paint himself black. In fact, he's referring to uh, the weird makeup he wore in the, that bizarre movie Ronaldo and Clara. But you know, literally, where he plays in whiteface. But what he's really talking about is what I have talked about, if I may say. Um, he puts it better than I do. Willens does, and that is simply that there's this synthesis. This colorblind synthesis of American music, all of it, all of it. Yes, he modeled himself on Woody Guthrie. Woody Guthrie modeled himself on Lead Belly and on, um, um, going blank. Josh White? No, but another, uh, it'll come to me. Uh, but the point, the point being that, that, that uh, this, you know, it's all interconnected. That's really as good a way to, 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 uh, to say it as, as, as any. Um, and so you were with the dead when they did a brief tour with Dylan. Mm -hmm. Did you get to interact with him in any way or was he keeping to himself as he well, tends to do? Uh, the only person I ever saw him talking with was Jerry Garcia. He, he, uh, we talked once, um, and, uh, uh, Garcia, I just had uh, what they call radial keratotomy, which was uh, eye surgery to, uh, to uh, so you don't need to wear glasses, which I didn't for three years, and that was fun. And uh, but they were we, uh, Jerry said, yeah, he had eye surgery, you know, surgery, and and Dylan just went surgery on your eyes and sort of made this big face, and, <laughs> and I don't blame it, you know, I don't blame him. It was it was it's a, it's a weird thought, but no, um, Dylan. Was as he's very clear in Chronicles, uh, was not in the best shape um, of his life uh, when he toured with us. Mm -hmm. Or to be more honest, uh, actually, he was. Um, I'm guessing. Uh, I would say, if if you want to stick with the with the legalities, uh, at the very least, he was uh, abusing alcohol seriously because he did not. It was it was just one of the saddest things in the world. The Grateful Dead have. Never, you know, been models of propriety, um, and no, nor, you know, consistent. You know, the, the great legend of, of them, of course, is that, you know, wait until, you know, the third night in, in you know, a swamp town, then they'll be brilliant. 
Get him to Woodstock, suck, et cetera. Um, but as it happens, in the summer of 1987, which is, you know, uh, now, 10 months after Garcia came that close to dying, um, Jerry was clean, sober, and grateful to be alive. The rest of the band were ditto. It was the, the most sober, the most focused, the most ready to blow the doors off that they ever were, and so happy to back Dylan. Except that Dylan is not a band musician. It's a special skill how the musicians that, that, that do back him now can sort of anticipate him. But I mean, I was listening to the best show of the tour. It, it was not a good tour. I mean, he just wasn't there. And, and he, would play, he would pull out songs that they'd never rehearsed. And they rehearsed 100 songs. Um, or there's this moment, uh, the best night. And I haven't heard it since, since then. So it's been 20 years plus. Uh, and somebody made me a, David Gans uh, made me a, a CD uh, of the night uh, at Giant Stadium. And, and at the time I thought, okay, I had gone out in the audience and there was a lot of energy. And, um, and it, was, it, it was frequently good. And, but then I listened to the, the version of Chimes of Freedom, which is one of my favorite songs. That was one of the moments where I was, you know, going, oh yes, this is, because this was the second show of the tour and the first one was, eh, no, okay, all right, but now they're getting it, you know, and it'll all be good. It wasn't. And I listened to Chimes of Freedom and I suddenly realized that um, they played it well, they're going good. Garcia starts winding into this fabulous solo and Dylan cut him off in the middle of his solo. And it was like, he's not a band musician. I mean, he would, anyway. So yeah, that was, a, that was kind of a disappointment. So you said you became a deadhead. It was before you, you I think in our previous interview, you had seen up to 200 shows. That's a lot of shows. But then by the time you finished with them, you saw 900. Well, 900 more. Uh, but I'm, I'm, not allowed, I'm, not allowed, I'm not allowed to talk about those because I was getting paid to be there. Yeah. All my friends with long lists of how many shows they went to say, no, you can't claim the 900. That you were paid to be there. It's, it's no fair. So what was that like, Mosiva? You told me that you know, the, the dead were famous for doing two sets the first one was often kind of a warm-up, and they'd take a break, and then they'd come back, and hopefully something magical might happen, you know? So what were you doing? You said you were usually doing your work during the first set anyway. Oh, I was the luckiest guy in the world, because, yeah, I, as the publicist, what I basically had to do was to get the photographers and the TV people in, give them a legitimate amount of access so that they were happy, and then take them out and make sure that neither the band nor the crew ever had to deal with them, especially the crew. Um, and as long as that happened, well, the, the, if I did it perfectly, then the crew would say, the hell are you doing around here anyway? Because, you know, they never saw them. Um, and that was just as well. Uh, but the, the TV people loved it because, you know, instead of getting three seconds um, uh, at, you know, 2,000 yards at a Rolling Stones show, I was giving them 20 minutes of good footage with good sound and blah, blah, blah. And they, they thought I was the, you know, they loved me. Um, and it worked out well for everybody. And so you were done and, by the... And so that was yeah. first set. And then after intermission, uh, except for the occasional chore, I got to go stand in the pit and listen to them. And so you were traveling. They were constantly on the road. You were traveling with them. And did you become particularly close to any of them? I mean, the main figure, of course, Jerry Garcia, died it's 20 years ago this year. 
And uh, were can you, you believe? If you can believe that already. And so were you? You know, I, you told me that he he uh, walked your wife down the aisle at your wedding. So he, obviously yes, you he had did. a connection. Well, he. he Walked Susanna down the aisle mostly because he was a friend of Susanna's well, long before I met him. Um, they, you know, they had Susanna taught him how to uh, run a Macintosh. Susanna was the first adopter of uh, Macintoshes in in the club. Uh, you know, and anybody uh, connected with the Grateful Dead, and uh, taught him how to use one. Um, uh, but and her dad had had uh, left us when she was small, um, and he was sort of our matchmaker. Uh, literally, he said, "You want to hang out with that." Susanna check. Okay. <laughs> and said more or less the same thing to Susanna. Um, and and, uh, and uh, so since it was his fault, um, uh, and because we were in a club in uh, San Francisco that had a pool with a hard plastic cover, so she told him that, uh, you know, if, she, if, if he'd do it, um, he'd get to walk on water. <laughs> the Oasis and the Oasis, yeah, yep, and um, and he, he very kindly did, and it was very sweet of him. And uh, the best moment of that was that um, they were sitting in the he and the bridesmaids and Susanna were sitting in the room, you know, just before going on, and uh, he was obviously really nervous. And one of the bridesmaids, who's again an old friend of his, said, "Jerry." You know, you appear to be nervous. And he went, oh, yeah, man. <laughs> and she said, but you stand in front of 50,000 people and play. What's, you know, what's the big deal here? And he says, yeah, but I don't have my magic shield, my axe. <laughs> so uh, I might add that we had this very elegant and beautiful, uh, the original uh, record version of Addicts of My Life, which makes a wonderful wedding march if you're not nervous. Um, and you have to do this slow walk. Uh, Susanna and Jerry set world land speed records for how fast they got down the aisle. And then I was like signaling the sound guy, cut it, cut it, cut it. But we stood there and listened to the song. It was a good song. Anyway, it was a, it was a great day. And great you know, party. You said it's kind of a, you had a, a sometimes difficult line to watch and that you were both a friend in a sense, or at least, but you were his employee in a sense too. So, you know, you had to, I mean, did that change things? I, mean, you know, I think it changed, you know, well, this is going to sound self-serving, and I really, um, believe me, I don't take it seriously. Um, when Jerry, when I met Jerry, and, and I was sitting there going, wow, because I was a deadhead. I mean, you know, I'd been a deadhead at that point for uh, eight years. And oh, I'd met him once, which he didn't really remember. Um, but when we, when we met, what, in the period that led to, my being the biographer, um, he, we met, and I, it was part of a completely separate issue, which I won't bore you with it, but I, I managed to slide into the conversation. Um, well, I wrote this book about Kerouac, and I sent you a copy, and did you ever get it? And he literally hopped up. He was across the room, and sitting in a chair, and he hopped up and ran over and shook my hand and said it was the best book he'd ever read. Uh, you know, uh, which is to say, yeah, and I... Even then, I was going, no, no, hold on, son. Let's not go too far with this. I am serious. Jack Kerouac was his hero. Was what, and we later had a very long, serious conversation about it in which he said, you know, what he literally said was, my entire ethics, my entire worldview, my entire, the way I approach life, which is that music is important, 
money is not. Success is not important. It's staying true to your, you know, the bohemian ideal. That's what I live by. And, and as he also said, and since, um, what did he say? Your biases, speaking of me, your biases conform to mine. <laughs> I really like, you know, I, I really love your book and blah, blah, blah. And why don't you do us? All, all good. So, in a, in a odd way, the first couple of times we met, I wa- and he was a very, very literate guy. And, and, and so he, you know, again, don't take this, don't think I take this seriously. He sort of saw me as a hero, you know, because I'd written this book that he really, about this guy he really cherished and, and a really central part of his young life. Um, so that's, uh, and, and then, you know, and then I'm around, you know, and then after a while, you know, nobody stays that way. He sees me as a person, respected me enough to hire me as the publicist, thanks. Um, and in fact, uh, and, you know, was, was uh, a great person, you know, was the best person in the world to work with, mostly because he refused to be a boss and I didn't need any guidance. You know, after, after the, that first <laughs> traumatic lesson, um, you know, and I, I mean, I knew sort of what to do, and I did it, and 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 the, it, it it worked out fine. And in in you know, 15 years or 11 years on the road with him, uh, he, I'll get you out of here, Vikitsa. Um, he, no, 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 no. I, I no, I'm an ex-road manager. I understand. Uh, he um, he he only you got could- pissed at me once. Yeah. And it was my fault because about one minute before they were due to go, Kreutzmann was on my ass like brown on rice to get something signed. And I brought it to Jerry one minute before they were due to go on. And he just looked at me like, and he, he signed it, but he was like, you know better than this. And he, he was annoyed. But fortunately, that was the only time. And um, two or three times, well, the, I'll brag about the best compliment he ever paid me. Um, uh, because it, it wasn't really so much about me. Um, the, uh, you know, we had this ridiculous hit album, Touch of Grey, uh, in 1987. And, and, and um, in 1988, there were the Bammies, which was, you know, Bay Area Music Awards. It was our local homegrown version of the, of the Grammys. And, you know, sort of an opportunity for everybody uh, in the music business in San Francisco in the 80s. Uh, to you know, pretend to be adults and, and dress dress up in black tie and you know, ladies get to you know really slick up and all this good stuff. And of course, the fix was in, and we won every award. It was you know, it was time to reward the Grateful Dead. You know, we finally had a hit. It only took twenty years, twenty two years. They finally had a hit. So um, the idea is that you know we're going to play. And we, we, they want us to play, and. Um, the band agreed, and you know Jerry let himself. For Jerry A didn't want. I mean, basically the whole idea, his idea was, wait a minute, this is competition. In theory, in theory at least, it was competition. People voted on it, and the idea of competition at music, uh, you know, mm-hmm. no, no, you know, dis- cognitive dissonance. Couldn't couldn't grasp it at all. Didn't want to do it, but you know, I, I looked at him. I said, look, this is about noblesse oblige. Your your peers want to say congratulations, you know, and that's all, that's the best, you know, you don't have to take it seriously. 
And then, and, you know, they made him use other people's amps because, I mean, you know, it's a stage with 30 people, 30 different acts playing in the course of the night. There were technological limitations which made him crazy because, you know, he had his own guitar, but that's where it ended. And it, so, we get to the night. And I'm standing on the loading dock of Bill Graham, what is now Bill Graham Civic Auditorium. And finally, finally, he pulls up uh, and he gets out and he just looks at me and he says, man, I couldn't figure out a way to leave you hanging. <laughs> and went in and, you know, did his part. But uh, like I said, and that, you know, I... I, I, I I was very grateful to him. I don't know quite what I would have done if he hadn't shown up. You know, both, both, both him and Dylan were cast in the role of spokesperson of a generation, guru. I mean, really, you know, idolized and made much larger than life. And both of them, from my perspective, really hated that. Um, and whether they said so or not, and they did say so through the years. I mean, it's a huge burden to put on somebody, in a sense. And well, the, the, it is, and, it's, and you're right. The difference is Jerry had a much better sense of humor about it. And he, he, had, a, he had a band, all of whom, if he'd taken himself seriously in that role for a tenth of a second, would have been on him, you know, making fun of him, you know, until the day he died. So he had... And, People like Vicky and a whole lot of others, a family around him, that, you know, that there was a certain amount of insulation. Um, uh, Dylan got, it, got too much too fast, and it made him entirely crazy, and, and he, he had to pretend to break his neck and take, you know, eight years off just, just to walk, walk away alive. Uh, with Jerry, it was like, you know, a longer, slower haul, and eventually too many deadheads deified him too much and, and he insulated himself with drugs and, and then eventually killed himself with cheeseburgers because, you know, I mean, he died of a heart attack and he was, that's... So you do think that burden was part of what... Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. He, he, the idea, include and, in honesty, people like me, which is to say the 50 employees, all of whom wanted to keep getting their paychecks and he wanted to, like, stop. You know, yeah, or, you know, get off the wheel. And other band members who wanted to get paychecks and who said, no, no, come on, let's do that tour. All right. He wanted to play bluegrass in the local bar. He would, you know, oh, exactly. He didn't want to stop playing music, but he, you know, the size and the, 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 the pressure. You have to understand that the Grateful Dead was not six guys. It was everybody in the room, all the people connected, and it, he referred to it as sort of this, this other thing, partly to, you know, avoid responsibility, but partly because it was true. What the Grateful Dead was was this giant dragon that was the energy of a million people. And it consumed him. So we've talked about basically some of the content of all three of your books, and I uh, just, uh, in a concluding minutes, I'm wondering if people want to ask questions of, of Dennis. Absolutely, and if anybody needs to leave, now would be a good, you know. Yeah, it's if fine. If you're it's getting no nervous problem. about the clock, we can take a one-minute break and everybody can get up that wants to leave. Well, we, we'll be all right. We go. So, okay. a question. But anyway, yes. Martha? Oh, thank you for opening up here. I'm just curious because I was out of the room for a minute, but if you ever mention Alan Lomax, Alan Lomax. 
you know, on recording the field recordings and all that. I, I didn't mention Alan Lomax, uh, you know, um, but of course I've talked about him implicitly because I talk about Muddy Waters being um, um, uh, Robert Johnson's heir, and, and of course, and Leadbelly for that matter. Alan and, and his father started in 1933 with a 500 pound portable tape recorder. Amazing. It was in the trunk of a car, you know, and they pull up, open the trunk, and start pulling out wires. Uh, I guess it was connected to the car batteries for power. And uh, they started recording people, including Lead Belly, in prison. Again, that theory, which is false, if I say so, um, was that uh, the guys in, in prison uh, were isolated from current fads and therefore um, would uh, be a pure source of, of old-time music, and that that's what they were looking for, which, of course, is nonsense. I mean... As an example, um, uh, Goodnight Irene, which is Lead Belly's signature tune, uh, was, uh, he, Lomax said, well, you know, where'd you learn it? And he said, oh, my uncle so-and-so taught me. And, uh, and uh, that may very well have been true, but in fact, it was a uh, minstrel song from the 1870s, um, which, and, and, and one of the songs, I'm pulling a blank now, but one of the songs that, that he was, uh, famous for was a Bessie Smith song. Uh, Lomax, John Lomax, not Alan, um, uh, got you know put his first publication as a musicologist was about cowboy songs, and he got sued because he claimed he called "Home on the Range" a folk song, as in nobody knows who wrote it, nobody knows where it came from. Well, actually, and he lost a lawsuit because. Home on the Range was written by a dentist in Kansas somewhere. I think it was a dentist, I swear, um, in like 1875. Well, you know, it's at that point, he should have been a really, really skeptical about what he called a folk song. I mean, you know, having been burned that way, it's, you know. So, um, and he's also, there's a lot of aspects of his relationship with Lead Belly that are extremely troubling, which I, I won't go into. Alan was considerably more you know, he's the next generation, and a lot, and a, among other things, a lot more radical and, and politically radical. There's, uh, there's 28 citations of Alan Lomax okay. in the <laughs> index. Here, just so you know, yeah. we, we have another question. I'm, yeah. I just keep, there was one back yeah. here. Um, do you think that oppression creates culture? I mean, it's been. I don't know if it creates it. It certainly affects it. I mean, it's a theory that's kind of bandied about that oppression when, creates that, culture. That when minority groups are under oppression that actually that creates a flowering, a kind of a counter-flowering of culture. And I wondered if you thought that was happening with the, with the black people and the, and the white people and the way they look to them as being the authentic voice of life. Or, I mean, what is the, what do you think is the preoccupation with blackness that all the white people seem to be so, um, I mean, even now the young kids are into hip hop and and rap and all this stuff, the most basic kind of like, and yet at the same time for them it expresses expresses their own kind of oppression without them being oppressed because they are entitled. They are very entitled, but but uh, well, you know, as as a Buddhist, I would say they're also you know they also suffer. They all, they are also um, part of suffering, and and they find a message of freedom implicit freedom, or at least resistance, in black music so that it suits them. 
Um, I, w I don't know if the word um, creates culture uh, is, is too, too good. The, the, the miraculous thing, the remarkable thing, when you think about it, of the slaves in America, they're entirely, unlike slaves, for instance, in, in the Caribbean or Brazil, instead of being um, in large, you know, large groups where they're, I mean, in, in, uh, in uh, Cuba, for instance, um, they're like 90%. So, you know, th they can maintain their language, they can, you know, et cetera. In America, they're broken up into very small groups. Um, they, they, you know, they have no connection with their own culture. Within, a, you'd think within a couple of generations after arrival, they'd be, quote, Americanized. When in fact, in the end, they affected American culture at least as much as they were affected. It's simply the, the the, and I get into it a fair amount. The, the, the idea of the ring with very, there were various, mostly through song and dance, uh, and some kinship. All they had, they had no objects. You know, they made their own band. Okay, they, you know, they got, to, they eventually made banjos, uh, but in, by and large, they had, you know, they, they, they had no technology. They had the ability to sing. They weren't allowed drums, of course, except in New Orleans. Um, but they sang and they danced. And in so doing, they managed to keep enough of a sense of being African or now African-American um, to maintain some kind of cultural identity. And all I can say is that speaks to the, the power of West African and there's many, you know, the other complication, of course, is you can't, you know, they're not African, they're Dahomey or, you know, whatever. There's, you know, there's 50 tribes that, that were kidnapped in Africa and, and, uh, and, and brought to America, which, you know, further complicates uh, all of our understandings. When I, when I was traveling the world and doing world music journalism, writing about music from all over, I developed a sort of uh, half-cooked theory that the worse the conditions, the better the music. So if you went to Jamaica, you went to Haiti, you went to Brazilian slums or, you know, Africa and uh, some of the Latin, Lat Latino places and then as development. Now, it doesn't hold for classical music, of course. But, I was going to say, <laughs> no, I, I'm trying to sort that and all I can say is, is my other, you know, favorite music is Indian classical music and mm -hmm. um, that's not generally associated with absolute poverty. Yes. That's, I mean, that's, no, in, in India, that's, you know, yeah. it's a respect. Well, classical music, there's yeah. a certain amount of, uh, you know, there's a lot of respect. I mean, as a matter of yeah. fact, it's the central, until the recent economic boom in, in India, it was, it's the, along with the, you know, with architecture, it's the most um, cherished sort of central yeah. part of the Indian identity. So, but, it was a yeah, no, 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 it, it, <laughs> it works for, for, you know, a lot of aspects. Right. I think it's true. Other questions? More? For Dennis. All right. Okay. Uh, one more. Was there one? Someone? Okay. Yes. I just yes. wanted to chime in. Um, I grew up um, in my, you know, between about eight and eighteen. I grew up in the Upper Midwest in Minneapolis, and um, I happened to have the good fortune of going to this uh, high school, university high school, which was on the campus. I came all the way from another end of Minneapolis, but. 
there was a, a group of people in St. Anthony Park who were kind of kids of uh, academic kids. They had, and, and Mark Naftalin was there, uh, a man named Dave Barnum was there, Dave Ray of Ray and Kerner. Yeah. They were there, and they, uh, I wasn't, I was kind of a satellite to this, but uh, they were also doing the same thing. Dylan was another few hundred miles north, which was on the Mississippi River, late at night, teenagers with crappy little radios being able to hear the music from Arkansas and from Baton Rouge and hearing that music before really it had uh, a chance to, you know, it was the beginnings. And, and Lead Belly was a huge inspiration for... And Nathalie became part of the Butterfield Band, right? He was yeah. in the Butterfield yeah, Band. Exactly. And Dave Ray um, yeah. was a marvelous 12-string guitarist. And they, I remember as teenagers, uh, there was a Dave Ray and Steve Tomes who was a complete recluse, who was supposed to be better than Dave Ray, you know, that kind of stuff. But Dave Ray was playing Fannin Street, which was one of yeah. the great pieces that Lead Belly did as a 16-year-old kid on his 12-string guitar. And I remember going to parties. And, you know, I was playing basketball and, you know, baseball, <laughs> and he was playing 12-string guitar. And, and that was what you said, the white-faced. Uh, in our generation, you dispensed with having a black face on. You just went for the music, and it took it into your soul. And uh, so I just wanted to, uh, that, well, that, oh, and that was the Mississippi River. Absolutely. And, and that and, is that great cultural. And when Dylan got to, to yeah. that neighborhood, uh, specifically to the, the Bohemian, the 10 o'clock scholar, uh, scholar in the neighborhood called Dinky Town, which is Dinky just that, off the campus of the university, during the, the year he pretended to go to college, um, uh, he said, being around people like that after hibbing, um, every day was Sunday. Yeah. And he was, uh, you know, there was a Dinky Town culture, yeah. you know, so that when he went through Dinky Town, he, you know, and he had it on his little raincoat all the time and was kind of like already sort of Bob Dylan. And, but people who knew him at that time, and I, I was part of... Uh, University High School was next to Dinky Town, right. and the people there were really critical of him. I never saw him, I never met him, but they said that he was constantly fabricating. Oh, people at home always. <laughs> Didn't stop. People at no, home always know what, what you're up to. Okay, so so last, last one for you. This is a tough question too, but I think you can answer it. Five favorite albums. <laughs> Just Dylan or all? Any, anybody. <laughs> Don't think too hard. It's too hard if you think. Uh, you know, so. Well, oh God, I usually okay. Uh, five favorite albums: um, Blonde on Blonde, Dylan. Sketches of Spain, My Favorite Things. <laughs> rock and roll. Uh, a rock and roll animal is. <laughs> Probably listen to it. Lou Reed. Not, Lou Reed. Yeah. Uh, great album. Oh. It's one of the. It is one of the five great. Oh, Live Dead. Ah, okay. Uh, but uh, Rock and Roll Animal is, I would argue, one of the five great live rock and roll al animals. I think he said uh, Omen uh, albums. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what else? Um, Last time you said Omen. Oh, Brothers, and yeah. um, just because it's the first album I ever bought. Um, 
Live at the Five Spot, Thelonious Monk. Uh, so, anybody wants to buy a book? They're out there. Yeah, we're I'd be glad to sign here. We do these for free. We welcome and encourage donations just to help us to continue this series. And most of all, thank you very much, Dennis McNally, for coming here today. Man. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation with Dennis McNally and Steve Heilig. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Facebook.